Hi everybody, Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I need 90 minutes. If you can give me that much today, we'll be able to look at current events in light of biblical prophecy. That's what my banner over my website says. By the way, that website, prophecytoday.com, you must be listening either on live streaming from our broadcast central here in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where we're located, or you're listening on to one of the network stations across the nation that is carrying the broadcast. So glad you could join us. We've got quite an agenda for you to be able to eavesdrop on as we talk with these broadcast partners. Ken Timmerman, he's standing by in Washington. By the way, he just spoke this morning in Washington. They had a big march over to the White House after that. We'll get the details in a moment. David Dolan going to have a Middle East news update. Colonel Bob McGinnis at the Pentagon. We're going to talk about China. What part did they play in the North Korean decision that the president made? We'll get into that with Colonel Bob McGinnis. John Rood covering the European Union. Sam Rohr, he has his own radio broadcast and the American Pastors Network. Going to talk about President Trump being the most pro-life president that the United States has ever had. We'll talk with Sam about that in a moment. And then David James, the Pope has come out to say that he believes God makes people who are homosexual, sodomites, to be that way and then blesses them. Well, I'll see what David has to say about that issue. This is the agenda for the broadcast today. So glad you could join us. And by the way, if you get a chance, call a friend, even between our commercial breaks, and tell them to listen in to the broadcast. Well, as promised, let's go to the catbird seat in Washington, D.C., Ken Timmerman. Ken, I know that on Friday, yesterday, you had an opportunity to speak in Washington, and then uh, they all paraded down to the White House to cheer on President Trump. Can you give us some of the background and details? Well, uh, <laughs> interesting event. You had Iranian-Americans who gathered just below the Capitol building in Washington. Uh, I addressed them, and a number, a number of other people did as well, about the policies of President Trump. And they came there for one reason, which was to thank the president for changing the policies of Obama towards the Islamic State of Iran. It was really pretty dramatic. You know, you don't hear that kind of thing every day. You had a group of Americans of Iranian descent thanking the president because he was finally standing up to the clerical usurpers in Iran. Very, very exciting opportunity for you. Appreciate the opportunity of being able to talk with you today after that took place on Friday and uh, kind of get caught up. Well, I would imagine the number one story has to be uh, that President Trump canceled the meeting between he and Kim, uh, the North Korean-United States summit that was to take place on June the 12th. What do you think about what did happen? Well, I, I think what the president did was bow to the obvious. There was a preliminary meeting to work out logistics on the Singapore venue last week, and the North Koreans didn't show up. And, you know, the State Department ultimately concluded that they weren't serious about this summit. Uh, Mike Pompeo said, uh, I think it was on Thursday, he said, we were calling and calling, and all we got was a lot of dial tones. So North Koreans uh, did not want to go through with this summit. They were looking for an out, and the president said, okay, we'll just cut the cord right now, with a very stern warning to them. You can 
make a deal with us or else your country is basically going down the tubes. Let's go back to Iran again. We were talking about Iran and your opportunity to address that group and then they marching to the White House. The United States, through a foreign policy speech made by our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, imposed the new sanctions on Iran. Now, uh, the result has been there's been some praise and some contradiction of uh, our attack, actually, you ought to be able to say, against that decision uh, by the president. You know, that's a pretty major story. How are your people feeling? I guess they rejoiced in it. And what do you think about it? Well, first of all, Iranian Americans are ecstatic. I think Iranians inside Iran are ecstatic because for the first time they see a U.S. president. By the way, Donald Trump is the seventh U.S. president to have to deal with this Islamic state in Iran that has taken the people of Iran back to the Dark Ages. He's the seventh U.S. president dealing with this, but he's the first one who has articulated a forceful policy that I believe could, in fact, lead to regime change in Iran. And that's what people are sensing. That's why the Iranian regime is so terrified. You see them running around Europe. You see them running around wherever they can, trying to drum up support. They're in Turkey. They're in Moscow. They're You name it. But they are on the ropes because their economy is going under. These sanctions are going to cripple their oil exports, as they did between 2012 and 2015. And it's going to it really hinder their ability to do any kind of business. European companies are already dropping out of prospective contracts in Iran. And even though the Europeans say, well, you know, we're going to require that European companies do not adhere to the new U.S. sanctions, that's just not going to happen. In the real world, that's not going to happen because the president has given them a choice. You can trade with Iran, you can do business with Iran, or you can do business with the United States of America. Which do you prefer, Total, oil company of France? Which do you prefer, Siemens, big electronics uh, giant of Germany? All of them, Jimmy. All of them prefer to do business with the United States of America. Well, that does seem like the bottom line, and that's the decision, ultimately, uh, that the European Union members are going to have to make. Meanwhile, there's going to be a reaction to those sanctions being put on Iran by the United States. So I'm going to talk with David Dolan about what Israel's reaction is. But it seems to me, despite the fact that the Israelis are attacking the Iranian buildup of military power in Syria, Iran continues to go at it, getting ready to try to go after the Jewish state. You know, if I were an Israeli F-35 pilot or an Israeli commander today, I would say, you know, make my day. Sure, go ahead and rebuild your military facilities. We'll take them out tonight. It's a fool's errand that the Iranians are on, and they're going to learn it soon enough, I think, when the Israelis continue to take out their uh, capabilities. By the way, these airstrikes, there's, there's the big batch of airstrikes on the night of May the 10th when when the Iranians launched missiles into Israel, the Israeli Air Force is continuing to hit them. Uh, and it's, going, it's not going to stop until the Iranians withdraw from Syria. I don't know if you were able to read the report, the intelligence report that I sent along to you, but it looks like if Iran should resume their enrichment of the uranium that they need to to develop this nuclear weapon of mass destruction, there is a possibility the United States and Israel, in partnership, 
Uh, they're ready to attack if that needs to be done. Do you think that will be followed through on by these two states? Well, it's, it's possible. But, you know, if I were in a position of leadership either in Israel or in the United States, you know, I would be seeking means short of military force wherever possible. Now, in Syria, that wasn't possible. Israel was directly attacked by Iran, and Israel immediately responded, and they were right to do so. Meanwhile, in that same region of the world, our good old friend Tayyip Erdogan held a meeting with the leaders of the Islamic states. I think 57 of them got together there in Ankara. They decided that they want to go about getting ready to establish an Islamic army for the purpose of going into Israel and then reaching out to protect the Palestinian people. Could that materialize, or do you think that's just a bunch of bravado? Well, I think Tayyip Erdogan is going to do battle with Israel to the very last Palestinian. Uh, I, I do not see him committing Turkish troops to fight with Israel. He knows what's going to happen to them. I don't see any other Arab nation doing that either. Uh, this is Erdogan trying to position himself as the new caliph all right, of the Islamic State, of the international Islamic State. You mentioned those 57 Islamic countries. Uh, well, Erdogan has built a palace, uh, a new palace with a thousand rooms to accompany the heads of states and of those countries and all of their delegations to bow down to him as the head of the new caliphate. I don't think this is going anywhere, frankly. And I think Turkey is just asserting day in and day out how far estranged from NATO it has become. They are no longer a NATO ally. And I'm just waiting for our government here in the United States to recognize that publicly. Wow. A thousand rooms to accommodate all the Islamic leaders. I had not heard that very key information as we look at the end-time scenario found in Bible prophecy. Quickly, talk to me about China. I'll get on to China as we talk with Colonel Bob McGinnis at the Pentagon. Looks like the Chinese Navy, according to what they're doing, will be double the size of the United States Navy. We're talking not too many years down the road, 2030. That's going to be coming up pretty quickly. Uh, it is. It's a big deal, and it's something that uh, people who look at these things for the long term have seen coming for quite some time. I did a study on this about six years ago, I think it was now, and uh, everybody could see it coming. The Chinese are spending. You see where they're spending in the, for the military. You see the kind of weapons that they're building. And, yes, they want to build this international, what they call a blue water Navy, that will dwarf the United States Navy by 2030 unless we start building a lot of more ships. We are building more, but we're not going to be keeping pace with the Chinese. And their warships are getting better. The technology is better. They're getting more accurate. And by 2030, the estimate now is that they will have an entire aircraft carrier group, meaning the aircraft carrier itself and all of its uh, attendant ships around it, that will be nuclear-powered, which means that they will be able to go out for, on missions of six months, eight months at a time. And when you're talking about international activity, uh, maybe 10 years is not that long a period of time, so we had better be preparing. Well, we'll keep you abreast of what's going on with our broadcast partner, Ken Timmerman, on the Catbird Seed in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much, Ken. Appreciate it. We'll talk again next week. Thanks so much, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, David Dolan standing by. He has a Middle East news update for us. 
It's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is heard all across the USA on the Prophecy Today radio network, but also it is heard around the world through our website at prophecytoday.com. And Jay, there are many other features on our prophecytoday.com website, like daily news updated out of the Middle East as it pertains to what's happening prophetically. Special reports can be heard right on our website at prophecytoday.com. We have Prophecy Q&A available for you. Questions asked in the past can be answered on the website site if you just check it out and go to that particular spot. Prophecy Quiz is available, and parts of our Prophecy Today program, if you should miss any part of it, will be heard the next week right here at prophecytoday.com. And don't forget, you can even email your questions to us for our live radio broadcast. Just go to our website at prophecytoday.com. You'll be amazed, you'll be surprised at what you'll find on our website. Be sure to visit us at prophecytoday.com on the World Wide Web. Have you ever wanted to know more about God's plan for the future? Have you ever tried to understand prophetic passages in God's Word, like, say, the book of Revelation, and been frustrated at not being able to figure it out? Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest CD series, Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, will help you gain the ability to understand where to start in your study of prophecy and allow you to read God's Word in a new and exciting way. Understanding God's prophetic Word will allow you to live a pure and productive life until Jesus returns for the church. Keys will help you gain the tools you need to understand the end-time events as foretold in God's Word. Dr. DeYoung lays out a systematic approach to Bible prophecy for those who want to know God's plan for the future. Tracks included are A Roadmap Through the End Times, The Jew in Jerusalem, Daniel and the Antichrist, Ezekiel and Messiah's Temple, and Revelation and Babylon. To order your copy of Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's Keys for Unlocking God's Plan for the Future, visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung. I'm here at Broadcast Central, Chattanooga, Tennessee. All of our broadcast partners from their different locations around the world coming to this broadcast table to give us information on current events that will assist us in better understanding the end-time scenario that's found in Bible prophecy. Now, one of the key regions of the world that we have to keep a very close eye on is the Middle East, and in particular Israel, and then Jerusalem would be, of course, the focus of all of the entire world in the end times. Bible prophecy teachers have said if you want to know where God is in his timeline, look at what's happening in Jerusalem. Uh, That will make us aware of the time and the urgency of the moment. Well, David Dolan has been many years a journalist in that part of the world. He can give us analysis on every event that's happening. David, this week, of course, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Uh, did give a very important foreign policy speech. In that speech, he outlined uh, the 12 sanctions that uh, the United States is imposing on Iran. And uh, Iran struck back, of course. Now, I want to cover that, see what your thoughts are. But at the same time, there's a report that if indeed Iran should resume its uh, preparations to build a weapon of mass destruction, a nuclear weapon with enrichment that the United States and Israel are poised to attack. So what about the sanctions 
put on by the United States on Iran and the possibility the U.S. and Israel might be partners in going after Iran. Well, Jimmy, essentially a declaration of war was made by both the United States and Iran against each other this week. Now, that may sound strong, but if you read Secretary of State Pompeo's comments very carefully, including him saying that we plan to crush all Iranian terrorist operatives working around the world. Well, that sounds like military action. There were many other things he said that sounded like it, and President Trump himself, of course, uh, earlier said the same things. So the Iranians have replied by basically saying, we're finished with the United States. We consider you now an enemy, full stop. They always have, of course, but we're not talking with you or doing anything else with you. So that's very, very serious, Jimmy. And, of course, in Vienna on Friday, the Europeans and others in the nuclear deal met with the Iranians at the Iranians' insistence, and uh, they gave a list of demands for what they want to keep the, the deal going at all. And those include that they be allowed to continue with their ballistic missile program, that there be no attempts to curb their actions in the region uh, other than in Iran, and some other things that are going to be uh, unacceptable to France and others. They've already said so in Britain. So it looks like the talks will lead to nothing and the deal will be completely dead. At that point, Jimmy, is all I can say is military action is very much on the table. And, of course, uh, Thursday night we had another airstrike in Syria, believed to be by Israel, against targets uh, that Iran is controlling. We had a revelation that Israel used the F-35, the new U.S. F-35, in its earlier attacks there in Syria, Jimmy, by the Armed Forces Chief this week. That's revolutionary, never before used, a stealth aircraft in the Middle East. Israel is ready, fully armed. And, Jimmy, one other thing, the Security Cabinet is now meeting underground in a bunker in Jerusalem for their weekly meetings and any special meetings they have. That will continue for the foreseeable future. That is a precaution. They don't want Iran to take the entire government out when it's sitting, or the top leadership of the government out when it's sitting together in one room. I wrote about that in an anti-novel 25 years ago, and they've had such an underground bunker for that long, but they've just built a new one in recent years. It's extensive. It's an underground city, and that's where they're going to be meeting, and that is a sign, Jimmy, of any that we've seen that war is probably on the horizon. Well, when we talk about that, then, that uh, that intelligence briefing that says the United States and Israel will combine forces to attack Iran, that looks very viable then, doesn't it? Oh, it does. As President Trump has said, the U.S. is massively armed, and we still remain so. And again, this F-35, a very sophisticated new aircraft that never been used before in the Middle East. In fact, Israel's the first non-American country to use it in action and very effective and the Iranians want to take on Israel and the United States go ahead and the same of course with North Korea is what President Trump is saying well go ahead because you will find that we have capabilities beyond what you imagine and of course the Israelis have been warning about that uh, the late Shimon Peres saying during the next major war we will surprise the world by what we've developed in the quieter times. But it's going to be a very big showdown if it happens, and again, it's looking increasingly likely that it will. Of course, Iran continuing to build up their capabilities, their military operations there in Syria at Israel's northern border, which now brings me then to the question, the United States 
has mentioned that they may recognize Israel's hold and right to the Golan Heights. Now, that's key, of course. Syria wants that Golan Heights back, the part that's in Israel itself. They have a portion north of the border there in Syria as well. Are they willing and ready to attack at this time? And is this key? The United States is saying, well, go ahead, Israel. You can take uh, the Golan Heights as part of your sovereign area. Well, of course, it is considered in Israel part of sovereign Israel. The 1922 League of Nations Accord was going to leave that as part of the Jewish state because, of course, it's the main source of Israel's fresh water coming off of Mount Hermon and the other hills are up in the northern Galilee area flowing into the Sea of Galilee, the Kinneret, and then down to the Dead Sea, some goes, but most of it goes into agriculture and use. That's vital for Israel, so there's no way they're ever going to allow Syria to take that and it shouldn't have been theirs in the first place. But uh, there's been warfare, Jimmy, between Israel and Syria, too. Uh, the chief of staff in his comments not only revealed the use of the F-35, but he said that over a 100 Syrian rockets were fired at Israeli aircraft. During that operation, he said actually 32 Iranian missiles were fired into Israel, not 20, as previously reported, so nearly double. But he again said we knocked four of them down with our anti defense uh, air systems. And by the way, Jimmy, he said 85% of the attacks over the past few years from Hamas, from Hezbollah, from others, have been successfully intercepted by the three anti-missile systems that Israel deploys. That's a fantastic success rate. Of course, there's never been a missile blitz yet where, let's say, Hezbollah fires 80 or 100 missiles at the same time, and they have the capability to do that, then it would be much harder to have that high a success rate, because you have to take them out, of course, one at a time, but it still is fantastic. Again, it just reminds everyone, you take on Israel, you're going to find some surprises here. There is warfare going on, Jimmy, and it's just a a question of how big and how bold it's going to get. And of course, a key element remains, what does Russia do? What does Putin do? Does he look the other way, or does he draw a red line in the sand? Because, of course, despite his announcement in January, I think, that he was pulling his forces out of Syria, there's still a lot of them there, and they're not going to leave the main air and sea bases that they have there. They're simply not. David, another player in the state of Syria is Turkey. Tayyip Erdogan this week calling the Islamic group of 57 states together to form an Islamic army to go against the Jewish state of Israel to help protect the Palestinian people. That is a real threat also, is it not? It is, Jimmy, and another thing is happening that's likely to make the situation even more tense, and that is that there's a proposal in the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, to recognize the genocide of the Armenian people by the Turks in the early part of the 20th century. Well, of course, uh, Turkey to this day denies that there was a genocide. The evidence is overwhelming, but they still deny it. And they have warned, and in fact, Erdogan himself warned that if Israel did pass such legislation, that probably would be the point where all diplomatic relations would be broken with Israel. They've been broken before and then slightly repaired. They're at a very low level now, but there is still some contact. That looks like that may be going out the door. And, of course, his talk of forming an Islamic international army to come and take uh, back Jerusalem for the Muslims is not exactly endearing to the Israelis either. So we've got to remind uh, your listeners that Iran and Turkey share a common border. 
that together, size-wise, they're about 250 times the size of Israel. Their population's uh, 180 million combined. Israel's 8 million. So Israel's way outnumbered. And, of course, the Muslim League of Nations, 53 nations, we're talking about well over a billion people. Not that all of them would participate in such a battle, but many would. And uh, that, of course, is a nightmare scenario. But Israel has good friends. The United States, France, and Britain would certainly aid it. And, of course, it has the God of Israel, probably the best secret weapon that Israel could have. It's uh, not a secret, though. Yeah, that's not a secret. It's an absolute, David. That's a great way to end your report, my good friend. Thank you so very much. David Dolan, the man who covers the Middle East for us. He stays on top of everything. I love the fact he knows Bible prophecy as well. David, thank you so much. We'll talk again next week, buddy. You're welcome, Jimmy. God bless. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll go to the Pentagon in Washington. Colonel Bob McGinn is standing by asking him about, of course, the North Korean situation and China. What kind of a threat to all the world is China? We'll talk with Bob in just a moment right here on Prophecy Today. How do you like your news? You know, Jimmy, folks are listening to the news every single day, but sometimes they're getting that liberal bent, and we want them to have a different look at the news. Jay, that's correct. I have listened to ABC, CBS, and NBC when I returned from Jerusalem back to the United States, having just witnessed a news event in the Middle East, and hear the commentators over here speaking something almost different. That's why I write the Until Newsletter, and it takes the leading news stories of the month. I give the absolute truth behind all the details in those headlines, and then we look at it from a prophetic perspective. I want to give you the insight from God's Word as to how the political is setting the stage for the prophetic to be fulfilled. And Jay's going to give you the phone number how you can get your free copy of Until the Prophecy Newsletter. Just give us a call at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung here at Broadcast Central in Chattanooga, Tennessee. One half hour of our three half hours that we ask for each and every week, 90 minutes of information that we give to you when we bring to these broadcast tables our partners, broadcast partners around the world, giving us information as to the real truth and details behind the current events unfolding. It's not fake news. It's from those who know, and they know what they're talking about, and will give you the real truth. Colonel Bob McGinnis at the Pentagon standing by. We'll go to Bob in just a moment, and then we'll go to the area of the European Union. John Rood will give us his European Union update. Lived in Brussels for, I think, about 21, 22 years. He knows that piece of real estate and what's happening from that location. Sam Rohr, he has a national broadcast. We're going to bring him to these microphones for the purpose of talking about President Trump as the most pro-life president in U.S. history. Great news that he is standing with the unborn. We praise the Lord for that. Well, let's get back to Bob McGinnis. Bob, I ultimately wanted to call you to talk about China. I know you're somewhat of a number one China watcher, number two, a China expert. 
And I believe we better wake up to what's going on in China. We better do it quickly or the United States and the rest of the world may be in in deep trouble. But uh, during the time uh, that lapsed between when we set up the interview and the time we get you behind these microphones, President Trump steps up and cancels the Trump-Kim summit. I want to get your reaction to that. Take maybe one or two questions, and then we'll go to China. What about the cancellation of that summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un? What about that? Well, Jimmy, I found it uh, predictable, having dealt with with certainly North Korea for 40 years plus. The type of behavior we've seen from Kim Jong-un was evident in his father and in his grandfather. And I just read the letter that President Trump sent to uh, Kim Jong-un, and it basically says that because of your your tirade, uh, hostility, in a recent statement, uh, President Trump decided to withdraw from the summit uh, anticipating it would not be uh, predictable or certainly wouldn't be productive. I do believe that it's because of uh, his mentors in Beijing and Moscow that he has really with changed his behavior and his invitation that he issued to the president following the Olympics. And what I mean by that is that in late March, uh, we found that uh, Kim Jong-un took his ironclad train to uh, Beijing, where he was welcomed by President Xi of China, and he was given a state dinner and uh, all sorts of uh, pageantry. And I believe that President Xi, who subsequently met with him about a month ago, uh, said much the same message, and that is, young man, you need to understand that you know, based upon the 19th Congress of October of 2017, I'm going to be the leader for life, much like Mao Zedong. And because of that, I also you know, provide you with about 90% of all your foreign exchange. And therefore, it would behoove you, understanding that China is going to be the world's economic superpower probably in the neighborhood of 2035, and we're a rising military power, which will put us into position probably ahead of the United States uh, by the mid part of the century, that it's probably prudent to follow me. And, oh, by the way, Mr. Trump is only going to be in office no more than seven more years, and likely he'll be followed by a progressive much like Barack Obama who gave you what you wanted. And just in the last day or so, we've seen uh, additionally another mentor moving into town. Vladimir Putin sent... Lavrov, who is his foreign minister, uh, to counsel with a young man in Pyongyang. No doubt that Putin, being an authoritarian much like President Xi, delivered a very similar message when he says, you're confronting the West, especially the United States, you need to be very sophisticated in your approach, and you need to you know, use some of the tricks that we taught your father and your grandfather. You know, Jimmy, people need to understand that in 1950, before the North Koreans invaded into South Korea, that Kim Jong-un's grandfather was on the phone with Stalin, and Stalin hesitated to send uh, the North into the South only because of his concern that Truman would, in fact, use the nuclear weapon that he had already used in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. And it wasn't until after he came to the conclusion that, no, the U.S. would not enter that war, that he gave the go-ahead. 
the politics of that region are sophisticated, but they're also steeped in history, and we need to appreciate that. And I want to talk more about that in just a moment, and then in particular, China. Uh, but uh, let me just ask this final question as it relates to the Trump-Kim summit. Does this mean that uh, the opportunity has lost forever? No, I think it will perhaps happen. Keep in mind, uh, Mike Pompeo's been over there twice. He came back with an encouraging message that Kim Jong-un wanted to talk. And no doubt there are behind-the-scenes types of things. Mr. Trump, in the letter that he sent out to Kim Jong-un, uh, is, does not cut the cord of a potential future. You know, he, he basically says that, you know, that there are some differences of opinion here, uh, and if, if we can come to terms, then we'll meet. And we, he looks forward to that opportunity because he promises that this would be a, and this is a quote, a lost uh, opportunity for lasting peace and great prosperity and wealth for your nation, Mr. Kim Jong-un. And so the president is pragmatic about this. He's listening to his advisors, um, as, you know, certainly Bolton and, of course, Pompeo. And I think they have uh, rendered some pretty good advice. Well, as I mentioned early on, I called you to talk about China, but then this new development comes up, so we had to have you comment on it as well. I caught a thought that uh, the president, in one of his quick-called news conferences there when he was meeting with a foreign leader in the White House itself, he made this statement. He said that she, who is president of China, is a world-class poker player. Sounds like that's what's going on, doesn't it? Oh, it is. The, the Chinese have always been very bright. It's demographically or historically, people need to understand that only the best and the brightest, because of the, the, the structure of the Chinese civilization, rise to the very top. So he would have been the top of his class all the way up from a infancy all the way to where he is today. And he surrounded himself with very, very bright, very capable people. They study us uh, in great detail. They have dossiers that uh, understand the intricacies of those that get into power in this country and how we use that power. So he would have mentored this young man, who is somewhat of a renegade, but you know, also pragmatic, pragmatic because he wants to survive. And, you know, of course, uh, we saw the reaction that Kim Jong-un took toward what Mike Pence said the other day about reminding him about Omar Gaddafi and how he uh, was assassinated there on the streets of Libya and uh, Tripoli uh, only because, they say, because he gave up his nuclear weapons mm -hmm. and his chemical weapons in exchange for a modicum of peace. And as a result, you know, thanks to Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, the, he was left on the streets to be butchered. Um, that's what Kim Jong-un is fearful of. Most tyrants, most dictators are. And in his case, uh, he is a tyrant. And you know, there are people in that country that would slit his throat if given the opportunity. You know, when I look at China, and again, my original purpose for calling you, it looks to me like they're not stepping aside, but they are actually becoming more competitive against the United States, both economically and militarily. Your thoughts? Well, they definitely are, Jimmy. And in fact, later this summer, I have a new book on China and Russia. Uh, it deals with these 
indicators of a new Cold War, and it's it's very 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 sobering. Well, I want to get you back for a conversation about that book, so. Uh, see if you can get me a pre-published a copy of it and uh, also set up a time so we can talk about it. The world had better pay attention to what's going on in China, has it not? Because do you think China is capable of becoming number one superpower in the world, even above Russia and the United States? No question in my mind. And it depends upon what we do. Not, you know, Vladimir Putin has limited resources in terms of an economy that is basically energy-based. Uh, but he has a lot of technology, and he demonstrated that back on the March the 1st in his State of the Nation speech, where he put on display a lot of his high-tech uh, hypersonic weapons, his uh, cruise missile weapons, and, and a variety of other ICBM and the like. Chinese are doing the same and much more, and it's very sophisticated, and in fact, there's plenty of evidence that we are falling behind. So. It's incumbent upon this administration and the U.S. to get serious about the challenges out there. Uh, And if we don't, we will end up in second place, which is not a place to be in a world run by China. Not a place to be in a world run by China. The last comments of Colonel Bob McGinnis from the Pentagon, a man who knows what's going on militarily in particular around this world, author of many books. We're looking forward to the conversation with your upcoming book, Bob. And thank you so much for your great insight. Uh, We didn't realize that Russia had put one of its major players in there as well. Great insight. Thank you so much. We'll talk again real soon. Well, thank you, Jimmy. John Rood is the man who covers the European Union for us, having lived there even in Brussels headquarters for the European Union for over almost 30 years, and he is knowledgeable of what does take place there. We need to have someone, because this is a key region of the world prophetically, and we need to have someone on top of the current events unfolding. John, thank you for joining us today, and let me get right underway. Uh, The United States, through the Secretary of State, has uh, imposed new sanctions on Iran. Now, I understand, and we're going to talk about the European Union wanting to keep that nuclear deal together in a moment. What is the reaction, first of all, uh, by the sanctions imposed by the United States on Iran? Well, the European Union, of course, is feeling extremely pressured. The new sanctions on Iran dealing with individuals that have contacts and links to the uh, Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps. But I think uh, what's really impressive from the Secretary of State Pompeo's uh, address is that he's actually detailed the position of the United States, 12 steps that Iran must take to reach a new agreement with the United States. And so this is very comprehensive. They are to have a complete dismantling of the nuclear program, the end of ballistic missile tests, stopping terrorism across the Middle East, around the world, and a complete withdrawal from Syria. So this is very, very full approach. I think Iran was frankly quite surprised that all of that was stated, and it's coming to a showdown in some respects. Well, how about the European Union? They are not seemingly on board if they're going to 
be able to salvage the nuclear deal with Iran. They were participants, in particular, United Kingdom, France, and Germany. So three of the six, including then Iran, who came to this conclusion for the nuclear deal. Are they uh, understanding how they're going to do it without Trump and with these new sanctions imposed? Yes, there's a very clear strategy that they're imposing over the last few weeks, this is actually crystallized. We've been able to follow the entire process. The European Union cannot risk rupturing with all of the United States business contacts. And so they're heavily invested in Iran. The course of action that they'll take right now it will be a negotiating individual deals and diplomatic talks, which they're very good at, to be very stretched out. So the aftermath of the deal will sort of be segmented and be a series of uh, small individual deals. That's what I would be expecting there. So they're choosing a road that will have the least economic damage to both of their relationships, the USA and Iran. So they're put right in the middle of this. And, you know, by rhetoric, I've been in many sessions of the European Parliament. They are not very pro-United States. Now they're coming out with these statements, you know, that the, how the U.S. has placed them in this pressure. There was a very interesting quote from Donald Tusk, the president of the European Commission this week. He says, I think that the real geopolitical problem is when you have not an unpredictable opponent or enemy or partner. The problem is when your closest friend is unpredictable. So, but the, the European Union has hardly treated the United States as their closest friends. So they're in a big fix. Yeah, they are in the between the rock and the hard place. The uh, old common saying goes, and I think they're going to have to really get up to the table very close to be able to salvage this deal with Iran. Iran calling for them to absolutely make promises that it would be the case, and I, I'm just concerned that ultimately Iran and the United States, though they're on opposite sides, European Union will have to make a decision which way they're going. It seems logical they'll have to go through the United States. And in fact, when I look at Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, and those 12 steps that you talked about, that's basically how all the nations and the family of nations in this world are living, is it not? I mean, there's nothing special there that everybody should not be able to sign on to. Well, those are all points that should be very obvious, but it's just the type of thing people don't want to be mentioned in uh, official channels. So it's been a big game, cat and mouse, to see who can do what in terms of economics. The European Union is, is still trying to adjust. The European Union commissioner, one of them, came out and saying they're actually hoping to increase the trade with Iran. Mm. That's from, from this last week. They're trying to do everything they can, this sort of backdoor deal where the companies won't have to be affected by the sanctions. They want to scale up uh, euro-denominated credit lines, which would be a way to sort of get around the effect of the sanctions. But the truth is, really, the EU companies are going to protect their interests with the U.S. They know that the sanctions are not a bluff. The United States has imposed them before especially the banking industry. But particularly this week, the EU tone to Iran is, is shifting. They're basically saying we 
can't deliver on all the benefits that Iran is expecting, but we want to have some sort of deal, I'm paraphrasing to put it together, some sort of deal that concerns the ballistic missiles because that's the immediate threat to the EU. Yeah, absolutely. The U.S.-EU relations, they're hitting uncharted waters. Yeah. It's ironic. It's very crystal clear, the progression, but... The clearness is that we're going into an unclear situation. <laughs> absolutely. It's absolutely clear. We don't know where we're going right now. Exactly. Give me uh, just a, a quick moment, a uh, thought about Trump canceling the summit with North Korea. What is the European Union saying? Anything at all, or are they just watching? Well, I'm, I'm sure they're taking the cues from this, and they are learning to take President Trump at his word, I'm certain. The president has taken a very firm stand with Iran because that's an indication for North Korea. And it's interesting that really uh, Kim Jong-un, has, it's, it's an established procedure that five, six times he's done this where he's gone through a progression where he's bad, then he's good, then he's going to negotiate, then there's money. When the money runs out, he's bad again. Actually, everything was working quite nicely coming up to the summit, but when he uh, sort of switched roles a bit too fast, then they just pulled the plug on it. So it's really an indication, Iran, really showing how the U.S. will continue to deal with North Korea. The EU is on the sidelines. They really don't know how to take somebody that's going to act on his word. It's not their normal uh, procedure. Boy, that's an interesting thought. They don't want to take somebody at their absolute word. And of course, that's referring to President Trump. John Rood is the man who covers the European Union. We need every week to have a report because I do believe that the EU infrastructure for the revived Roman Empire, which is a part of the prophetic perspective for the future. John, thank you so much. Very good report. Appreciate it. Talk again next week, buddy. Thank you very much. Well, right now, we're going to be joined by a broadcast partner that is a good friend, and I actually am a broadcast partner with them on their own national radio station, over 450 different radio stations. We're talking about Sam Rohr and Stand in the Gap today. Well, here's what I wanted to talk about, Sam. I was so amazed to see President Donald Trump at the recent Right to Life banquet. It was just wonderful to hear him talk about his philosophy, his understanding of the right to life, even for unborn children. Now, this was not always the way it was with the president, was it, Sam? Well, no, I don't think it was. I think most people, when he was on the campaign, was wondering exactly where he stood on the matter of life. But I tell you, between the March for Life speech and these other actions that have been taken, the president, I would have to say, has probably, as presidents go, made statements and now actions and follow-through more consistent and without dispute, supportive of life, recognizing that it comes from God, and that it's, and I would say, government's responsibility to protect life. He senses it, and he gets it. It, frankly, is very remarkable, but... uh, greatly encouraging. Yes, it is very encouraging because we have a man who's willing to take a stand biblically on uh, what we understand is God's giving of life even to the unborn. 
In fact, it was interesting to see the chairwoman of the banquet make the statement as she was introducing President Trump that he was, in her opinion, and I want to see what your thoughts are, the most right-to-life president that we've ever had serve in our nation. Well, you know, I, I think that the statement that was made is, in fact, it's, it's correct. And again, based not only on words, I mean, clearly, when we go back, we've had presidents who were supportive of life. And not all have worked against them, such as President Obama and others who actually worked against them, against the matter of life. But the president's clarity on the importance for life and that he is unequivocal and, and even stepping in and talking about the funding for Planned Parenthood and all of that that's wrapped up, he has been consistent on this issue, as he has been on other issues. I think that's why he probably can rightly earn that title unless something goes south soon in this administration, he has established himself as the president who says he's about life and actually is trying to follow through and make sure that governmental policy uh, follows up on it. Those are very important things. Sam, let me uh, just say that uh, you would know what it means to have political power. In other words, to be able to be elected, serving almost 20 years in the Pennsylvania Senate. And uh, this opportunity now for the right to life people, those who believe that God has given life and in the womb that is still life and you cannot kill it, they have a pretty powerful political situation running in towards the midterm elections, do they not? Well, they, they do. You know, oftentimes people will vote with life as a bellwether type of a moral qualifier. Uh, but oftentimes, when those individuals get in, they may or may not actually follow through and support it. We've seen that happen too many, so many times. But, but the president, by coming out and saying what he is saying and going right straight at uh, a Planned Parenthood, going right straight at the matter of that funding should not be spent on the taking of life, he is giving, I think, every opportunity for those who would be running in these campaigns, these efforts coming up, that they can identify strongly with him, and I think it gives them courage to, to do more and to be more confident in what they're saying. So it is an item to, to differentiate uh, candidates one from the other, but it is one that, ha- that has been used oftentimes too much politically, but he's driving it right down to practical policy and action and follow-through, and that's what's so different about it. In your opinion, could we ever reverse or overturn the Roe versus Wade uh, amendment? Is it possible? Yes, the answer is possible. With this current court, no. Are there going to have to be additional justices to the court appointed by a president, such as this president who believes this way, sufficiently to overturn it? That could happen, but not until then, and that's why it's so important that we must be engaged as a uh, citizens of the kingdom of heaven as well as citizens of the kingdom of, of, uh, of this United States to look for and where we can support those who uphold biblical positions. It certainly starts with life, and it carries across the spectrum. And, of course, America can, to some extent, change the direction that she is going uh, with this fight for the unborn, can it not? Well, it can, absolutely, and that's one of the privileges that we have, being a representative republic, a a government formed on self-government, of which our people don't really understand that like they ought to, but if we really fully understood 
as William Penn said here, this holy experiment in self-government under God. If we understood our, our, our privilege and our duty, we could, in fact, as God's people, turn these things around, but God's people have got to wake up first, and that is our primary concern. God's people wake up, then our representatives follow and wake up accordingly. Well, of course, Sam, that's what you and your broadcast partners do there on Stand in the Gap today. And with your American Pastors Network, you have a basis to join with those who are solid on right to life from a biblical perspective to make some changes, at least save some lives in the future. And that's a thrilling thought, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I think often I go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30 where God took the people into the land and he says, you follow my statutes, you follow my commands, you follow the things that I tell you, you will have blessing. He says, choose life. And God puts before us in this nation today that same choice. We choose life or judgment. But life is not just life of the unborn. Life is the, ful- is the filling and living of God-blessed life as a nation, as a people, and that comes only when we recognize that God's rules, his commandments, his precepts are there for our blessing, and we follow them by choice. That's what he meant, choose life, and that's what I think we as God's people need to reacquaint ourselves with. Choose life, that means obedience to God's Word. And God's Word is absolute. Sam Rohr, he heads up an organization called the American Pastors Network, and uh, you can go to standinthegaptoday.com and find out more about that. Sam, thank you so very much. Great insight, but uh, great report to be able to mention our president as the strongest right-to-life president we've ever had. Appreciate it. Have a great day, and we'll talk on the radio again soon. Talk to you later. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, I'm going to be talking with David James. Hey, the Pope made a statement this last week. He believes that God made someone a homosexual, and he blesses him. We'll find out what David James has to say. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hi, everybody. Jimmy DeYoung. Welcome back. To this last half hour of the three half hours I ask for each and every week so that I can give you the world, look at the current events unfolding in our world, and then discuss with our broadcast partners the true details behind each event. And I bring that all together when I take a look at the book to see where we are in God's timeline for what's going to happen next, and that's the rapture of the church. In fact, talking about that... I would love for you to answer our poll question. It's located on my website, prophecytoday.com. It's on the home page on the left-hand column. If you'll scroll down, here's the question. The Bible says the rapture can happen at any moment. Now, with that said, do you believe we are in the time of the rapture as we see current events unfolding as foretold in Bible prophecy? That's the poll question. Go to my website, homepage, left-hand column, scroll down, answer the question for us, if you will. And if you are considering a possibility of coming to join us, you've got a couple of days. You can still come join us at our School of Prophets conference. Uh, David James and I will be speaking. David, he'll be talking about the Islamic world, understanding Islam. I'm going to start the first part of a three-part series on 
showing you Bible prophecy passages throughout the entire Bible. The more I prepare for this course, the more excited I get, and we're going to, in fact, make it into a book. Love to have you come and join us, or you can do that by watching us on live streaming video as well. Go to the website, prophecytoday.com. We're now bringing to these microphones David James for our weekly conversation, an issue that we want to discuss together. You can eavesdrop on the conversation and come to a better understanding, biblical understanding, of the issue we have in focus for this week. This weekend, we find David between ministry assignments after being at Word of Life these past two weeks. He's now getting ready to make his way here to Chattanooga for our conference, which begins next Tuesday. And we'd love to have you come and participate. You can go to my website, prophecytoday.com. On the home page, there's a rotating banner up top. When it comes around to the School of Prophets conference, double-click on it. You'll go to it, the schedule, the way to register. If you want to watch it via live streaming video, you can do that as well. Again, the website, prophecytoday.com. David, uh, up there in uh, that part of the world where it's so beautiful in the Adirondacks of New York State, You've been busy. I do know that you actually were able to teach not only your course that you always do, God's Plan Through the Ages, but your course on Roman Catholicism there at Word of Life, a course that you always teach at least a couple of times a year. So I know that uh, you try to stay on top of what is happening in the Catholic Church, and this brings us to our topic for this week's discussion. Well, that's right. We actually, both you and I, as we try to stay on top of world events, not just what's happening in the Catholic Church, but on current events uh, worldwide, both of us independently had run across uh, an article about a recent statement by the Pope concerning, once again, not the first time, but statements regarding homosexuality, which seemed to uh, put him somewhat at odds with the Catholic Church, and I'm sure we'll get him into uh, more hot water, not only with more conservative Catholics worldwide, but with some of the conservative hierarchy in the Church. So once again, this Pope has stirred up quite a bit of of controversy, uh, and these were comments that were first reported by Spain's El País newspaper earlier in the week. Well, for our listeners, David, I think it'd be good if you would rehearse what we're talking about. Maybe they haven't heard of the most recent controversy with the Pope. Can you go in a little bit more detail into the circumstances and exactly what it was that the Pope said? Sure. Well, there has been quite a controversy throughout South America concerning sexual abuse, uh, clerical sex abuse, by various Catholic clergy, and this kind of uh, came to a head recently with a sex abuse story that was coming out of Chile, and in fact, there were those who had gathered at Vatican, and in total, all of the bishops in Chile, a total of 31 active bishops, had actually and three retired bishops actually announced in a statement that they had offered their resignation over the scandal and placed the issues in the hands of the Pope that he might decide for them. So uh, overall, it's a situation that has rocked that entire country. But beyond that, there was a man named Juan Carlos 
Cruz, who was a survivor of sexual abuse, who spent three days with Pope Francis at the Vatican, and he had explained to him all the things that he had gone through as a young man concerning his sexuality. He is a gay man, and according to Juan Carlos, this man, he told the Pope this, and the Pope reportedly said to him, you know, Juan Carlos, that does not matter. God made you like this. God loves you like this. The Pope loves you like this, and you should love yourself and not worry about what people say. So this has once again brought to light the Pope being in a different place on this. In fact, for our listeners may remember, we dealt with this a couple of years ago. The Pope actually referred to homosexuals and said uh, in uh, January of 2016, who am I to judge if God has made people like this? Well, wait a minute. I've got to ask this question. With those statements by the Pope, how does that compare to the official teaching of the Catholic Church on this issue? Well, if you go to the most recent catechism of the Catholic Church, which was published under Pope John Paul II back in 1992, for those who might be familiar with Catholic catechisms, all the articles and all the statements in a catechism are listed by number for reference. They sort of serve the same as our verses do in our Bibles, so catechisms have numbers. And under the section on chastity and homosexuality, and specifically number 2,357, this is the specific paragraph, this is actually what this most recent catechism of the Catholic Church says. Homosexuality refers to relations between men or women, or between women who experience an exclusive or predominant sexual attraction toward persons of the same sex. It is taken in a great variety of forms through the centuries, and going on to say, that it says this, basing itself on sacred scripture, which presents homosexual acts as acts of grave depravity, tradition has always demand, declared that homosexual acts are intrinsically disordered. They are contrary to the natural law. They close the sexual act to the gift of life. They do not proceed from a genuine, effective, and sexual complementarity. Under no circumstances can they be approved. So this puts the Pope very clearly at odds with these clear statements that govern the Catholic Church. And another thing that our listeners need to understand, that when these catechisms are put together, they are approved by multiple bishops, and these reflect the tradition of the Church that are even decided in ecumenical councils and by bishops of the Church. And according to Catholic theology, bishops of the Church, when taken together under the Bishop of Rome, they rise to the level of infallible pronouncements. So many of these teachings cannot ever change because, of, uh, by definition, Catholic theology is not supposed to change. Uh, So that then absolutely has to beg the question, how does someone explain the differences between what the Church teaches and where the Pope seems to be today? Well, one of the things that you and I have discussed before is the fact that previous popes, especially his predecessor, Pope Benedict XVI, he was much more of a theologian than Pope 
Francis, Pope Francis has taken very much a pastoral approach on this, and in fact, Time Magazine notes that in an article discussing this, that his attitude is much more pastoral-minded than those of uh, any number of his predecessors. And this is actually the area of homosexuality is not the only area in which this Pope has stood in contradiction uh, or in opposition to the general tenor of the teaching of the Catholic Church, even if it comes to the celibacy of the priesthood or the clerical celibacy, even statements with regard to abortion. He made statements in previous years where he demoted the forgiveness of sin of abortion down to a more local level, which was something that was previously reserved for the highest levels of the Catholic Church. And so this priest, who actually is from Argentina and grew up in the context of what is known as liberation theology, which is actually a combination of communist philosophy uh, combined with Catholic theology, he has just a different mindset altogether, and not being a European pope, his view on these things has actually, unfortunately, I would say, endeared him to many evangelicals, and this particular statement has endeared him even more with the LGBT community, the homosexual, the gay community, so he is being embraced, and I would say actually is moving the Church on a fast track deeper into the last days as part of an end times convergence toward that worldwide religion that we will see under the Antichrist. Well, I would have to agree with that 1,000%. Boy, You can see Revelation 17 right there on the horizon. Well, David, I think that we should spend our remaining time discussing this from a biblical perspective like we always do. First of all, I think it's important for us to consider what the Word of God has to say about what constitutes a marriage, no matter what society or culture might have to say about it. Well, that's right. And actually going back to the very creation, which I think is very important, where God established the institution of marriage at the end of Genesis chapter 2, in verse 24, we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus confirmed and affirmed this in referencing this in a confrontation with the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19, where he quotes that, and Jesus said, So then they are no longer two but one flesh. And I would contend that in Genesis chapter 1, where God says, let us make man in our images, when man and woman come together in the sexual union in connection with marriage, that they most fully represent the image of God in man as they join together, and homosexuals, whether it be two men or two women, they can never fully reflect the image of God in man, and they can never come together in a one-flesh union. So it goes directly against the institution of marriage. Now, having said that, uh, not only has the Lord defined what marriage is, he has also told us very clearly what is not acceptable to him. That is, what he considers sin in this regard. Explain that to us, David. Right. Well, he's very strong in what he has revealed to us. For example, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 
9, that neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, and he goes on to say none of these along with these or drunkards and so on, will inherit the kingdom of God. And this reflects what uh, God revealed through Moses in the law of Moses, going back to Leviticus 20. He says, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination and shall be put to death. Now, we don't put homosexuals to death, but this does give us insight into what God sees uh, and his attitude in this regard. And it goes on to say in Leviticus, this is in the context of even bestiality or uh, a man and incestuous relationships as well. So they're all categorized together as abominations to the Lord. Very, very important discussion that we've just had with David James. You might want to go back and re-listen to this. You can do that by going to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, Prophecy Today Radio Network. All of our broadcast partners and the conversations I have with them will be posted at that particular location. May I suggest you might want to either... Make a copy of that conversation, send it to your friends, or give them the web link that they need to go to and listen to this conversation as well. David, great research. Thank you for the insight and input that you give us, and looking forward to seeing you and getting the conference underway on Tuesday morning. Great. Looking forward to see you uh, next week, Lord willing. We're going to take a break right now. When we come back, I'm going to take a look at the book. We'll bring all the issues my broadcast partners discussed with me together, and I'll give you the prophetic perspective on them. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today. Hey everyone, this is Dave James with the Alliance for Biblical Integrity. You hear me each week discussing current theological issues with Jimmy DeYoung on the Prophecy Today weekend broadcast. We founded the Alliance for Biblical Integrity because we saw a need for an apologetics and discernment ministry that would be an important resource for local churches, schools, and ministry organizations that face ever-changing theological challenges in today's world. I teach many different courses and seminars in the United States and around the world and can tailor the seminars for Sunday schools, Bible studies, and church services, and the courses for weekend conferences of 6 to 10 hours. For more information, you can go to the ABI website at biblicalintegrity.org. That's one word, biblicalintegrity.org, and click on Courses and Seminars on the main menu. You can also contact me personally through the contact page on the ABI website. I look forward to hearing from you. In today's world, a biblical worldview and a proper understanding of biblical prophecy should be a priority. At a time when many false doctrines are entering the church at a frightening pace, we must be able to rightly divide God's Word in order to live a pure and productive life for Him. If you would like an in-depth understanding of biblical prophecy, let me challenge you to consider Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. The School of Prophets is an online study for the layman or student pursuing a master's or doctorate degree. Dr. DeYoung's online study program will allow you to develop a timeline of biblical prophecies of the past, as well as future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Your personal study of God's Word will only be enhanced by Dr. DeYoung's School of Prophets, and your life will be changed as you better understand, like Daniel, where you fit into God's calendar of events. If you're interested in developing a deeper understanding of God's prophetic Word, let me personally invite you to become involved in Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's School of Prophets. Call today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us at schoolofprophets.org. 
It's time right now here on Prophecy Today for us to take a look at the book. Of course, we're talking about what does God's Word say about current events as they fit into the prophetic passages of the Bible that the ancient Jewish prophets inspired by the Holy Spirit of God wrote for each and every one of us to know how a end-time game plan was going to play out here in our world. We had our broadcast partners come to these broadcast tables for the purpose of giving us the details behind the headlines that we're looking at, talking about, and everybody wants to know really what is happening behind these headlines, but what we bring to the table, but at the same time, we give a prophetic perspective on each of them. And that's what I'm going to do as we spend these moments looking at the book, the Word of God, as it relates to what's happening where current events are unfolding, we are on top of it. We have either somebody there, somebody who's been there, somebody who has contacts there. Uh, They help us to be able to set the stage for us to discuss a prophetic perspective on them. And if you missed any of my broadcast partners, uh, this is key. You need to be able to listen to them on a weekly basis. If you had to miss any on the broadcast today, go to my website, prophecytoday.com. Go to PTRN, that's Prophecy Today Radio Network. There you'll be able to listen to each and every one of the conversations. And then please do me a favor, call a friend, alert them as to what they may be able to learn from eavesdropping on the conversations as I have them with my broadcast partners. I'm going to now take this occasion to give you a prophetic perspective on the news today, and I'll go through the partners and what they had to say. For example, Ken Timmerman, he talked to us about President Trump pulling out of the United States-North Korean summit. He thought that the United States was being put down as it relates to a negotiating table, and the president was not going to allow Kim Jong-un to put him down. But this was the way that you go to the negotiating table. That's politically what happened. Prophetically, let me remind you that North Korea is included in Bible prophecy. When you go to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12, it says the river Euphrates dries up, making way for the kings of the east to come into the area of Jerusalem. And the next verse, actually, chapter 16, verses 13 to 16, it talks about Satan, Antichrist, and false prophet using signs, wonders, and miracles to gather all the nations of the world into Jerusalem. They'll dupe the world leaders. But let me also remind you, this is at the end of the seven years, most likely the last six months of the tribulation period. And by that time, half of the nations of the world have either been destroyed, half of the people of the earth, the population of the earth has been killed. They're laying in the streets all around the world. And basically, there's only one section of the world that has not been dealt with from a prophetic perspective. That would be the kings coming out of the east. And that would include China, India, Japan, North Korea, South Korea. These nations out there in the part of the world that is referred to as the far eastern part of the world. And they're going to play a key role because those will be the nations, including North Korea, will go to Jerusalem, gathering in Jerusalem, the book of Zechariah, chapter 14 and verse 2, for the purpose of trying to stop the return of the Messiah 
Jesus Christ. Now, that's when North Korea is mentioned in Bible prophecy. They're part of the kings of the East. However, does not say in the scriptures any place that some of the other players who are now politically connected some way to North Korea cannot be involved in bringing them on board, helping get information from them about the United States, about Israel, to play a key role in the first half of the tribulation period. And then David Dolan, he gives us a Middle East news update. We talked about the U.S. sanctions on Iran and the effects on Israel. Remember, the United States and Israel are ready to attack. Should everything fall apart because President Trump withdrew from the Iranian nuclear deal and the European Union cannot guarantee Iran what they want them to guarantee, and now it says, and Iranians are making the statement, they can start the enrichment of uranium very quickly. Some have even said, some intelligence reports are telling us that the Iranians could start building a nuclear weapon of mass destruction in less than two weeks. Now, that would mean that they would be a threat to Israel for sure. And now the Israelis and also the United States, these two military operations are saying they're ready to attack Iran if need be, uh, which uh, would be the reverse of what Bible prophecy calls for. It's not the United States and Israel on the attack, albeit they're ready militarily to have to deal with Iran. That being the case, the Iranians will make the move. Uh, They're talked about as Persia there in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38 and verse 5, where they're referred to as Persia. David Dolan gave us insight as to what the Israelis are thinking about, what they're planning today. Colonel Bob McGinnis, he was at the Pentagon. We chatted just briefly about North Korea and the summit that has been called off by President Trump. And then I asked him, because I heard in a White House briefing President Trump make the statement that she, who is the president of China, was a world-class poker player. Well, it looks like he's trying to play a little bit of poker as it relates to the president. The negotiating going on is uh, maybe three-sided. You have the United States on one side and the North Korea and China on the other side. China is playing a key role. Colonel Bob McGinnis gave us the insight of how China is becoming a major player, maybe ultimately the superpower of the entire world. Now that fits that scenario where the kings of the east make their way into Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12. John Rood gave us a European Union update, European Union having to try to guarantee the Iranian nuclear deal, and David James and I then talked about the Pope and the fact that God makes homosexuals and then blesses them. You must hear what David had to say in response to the Pope's comments this week. Well, I've talked about a scenario that lays out everything, all the prophecies that will happen after the rapture of the church, during the seven-year period of time. You understand what that means? That means the rapture takes place, and it could happen quickly because everything else that happens afterwards seems to be in place to be fulfilled right now. And having said that, that the rapture could happen at any moment, nothing left for me to say except let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.